0: Welcome to another Sunday morning Salvation by Grace message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly in Smyrna, Tennessee. Grab your Bible and join the congregation of GCA, along with our teaching pastor, Jim McClarty.
1: I hope if you learned anything last week, that you learned that there are some very basic divisions in Christianity, both ecclesiologically and soteriologically. How church is done, what the method of church is, and the practice that is ecclesiology. And if you are a Christian today, you are either part of Catholic ecclesiology and therefore theology or you are protestant and through the years there have been several divisions in protestantism where some people still hold to the doctrines that established the protestant reformation back in the 1500s and yet there are congregations today that call themselves protestant who actually hold to more free will type theology That's where we get into the soteriological part. All of Christianity soteriologically can be divided into two very big camps. And really those two camps can be defined by who decides. Do human beings, by their own supposed free will, do they decide to be saved, to spend eternity in heaven, to be with God? Or does God decide? Well, we certainly hold that it is God who decides, especially given some of the things that you're going to see this morning about our natural state. According to God, our natural state is completely depraved and incapable of doing anything that is positive toward God. Therefore, since it is impossible for us to exercise ourselves in a way to obligate God, it's impossible for us to believe that we're the ones who decide. Because God has already declared that we're incapable of deciding. We're incapable of doing anything righteous or holy. And deciding for God and eternal life would be a very righteous and a holy thing for us to do. Except that the Bible says we just can't despite the fact that the Bible is very clear about human incapability, nevertheless, there is a theology that has been around since the Synod of Dort that we identified last week as Arminianism. And Arminianism appeals to human free will, to human agency, to human capability, and says that you, as a human, have to decide by yourself that you're going to put your faith in God And then he will save you in response to the fact that you have put your faith in him. There's nothing in the Bible that would teach that particular theology. But as we said last week, that theology is really appealing to people. Mostly because people love themselves. And then any theology that says, well, God loves you too is just perfect for people because it's like, well, great, because I love me, and God loves me, and God thinks I'm a handful of aces, and God left it up to me to choose him, so I'm going to choose him, then he's going to choose me back because I chose him, and then we all just love me. But there's nothing like that in the Bible. The answer to the question, who decides, is obviously God decides. Now, through the years as we have promoted that theology I have been asked repeatedly how do you know that what you're teaching is right how do you know that that's correct after all you can go up the street barely two blocks and you can find the local megachurch that is busy telling people it's up to you and they pack their giant auditorium, and we struggle to fill this building. If you're just looking at it in terms of numbers, you would say, well, you're obviously doing something wrong at GCA because you're not packing them in the way that they do up the street. So how can you say that what you're teaching is actually right, actually biblical, actually correct? given that the theology they're teaching up the street seems to be working. Mm. So how can you know that you're right? The answer is, ours is the theology that gives all the glory to God. We give no glory to men. We speak of men's incapability. And before the morning is over this morning, I'm going to tell you what the Bible says about your own wretchedness, your own total inability, your own incapability, and your complete lack of ability to impress God or obligate God or inspire God to save you based on anything in you. If you read your Bible, you will find that the biblical anthropology really doesn't think much of you. The biblical anthropology says You are really, really all that bad. In fact, you're so bad, you have no concept of how bad you are. That's the only reason you can try to justify yourself is because you don't really know how bad you actually are. So people just skip that part of the Bible and go right to you can do it. You're capable. You're good. God thinks you're great. Well, let's begin then, since I just mentioned the Synod of Dort, which we ended on last week. Let's start there. We'll do a little bit more of ecclesiological history, just so that you kind of get the big differences that were spelled out at the Synod of Dort, and then we will get into the first of the five doctrines of grace. And then I will leave you walking out the door knowing that you're totally depraved, It's such a bummer to come to GCA. (laughs) The Dutch followers of Jacob Arminius came to the States General and brought a remonstrance. You learned that word last week. The remonstrance was a written document of what it was that they believed and what it was that they found contrary to Calvinistic doctrine. And they actually brought five articles, the five points that we know as the five points of grace or the five points of Calvinism, the five sovereign grace points. Those points were not just created out of whole cloth. They are actually a response to the five articles that were brought by the followers of Jacob Arminius by their remonstrance. So the Dutch Arminians were also called Remonstrants with an A-N-T-S, and I just hope that you can hear the different spelling in the way that I pronounce remonstrance and remonstrance. <laughs> Those who opposed the remonstrants were known as the Gomerists, who were the followers of Franciscus Gomerus. I mentioned him a couple times last week. Now you should be more familiar with his name. He was a Dutch theologian who upheld rigid Calvinism, and he carried on a theological controversy with Arminius. Now, as I told you last week, Arminius actually died before the actual Synod of Dort took place. So it was his students who were... Presenting the remonstrance. The synod began November 13, 1618. It ended in May 1619. Now, some people think that the Synod of Dort was really just all about the remonstrance and a defense of Calvinism, but that's not really what it was about in its totality. Part of the reason that it took a few years to even organize the synod in the first place was that they had several things that they were going to try to cover. For instance, they were going to look at a Dutch translation of the Bible. That was one of the things they were considering. They also talked about the censorship of certain books. The Senate also called upon the representatives of the remonstrants to express their particular beliefs, to come and make their presentation. What are your articles? Explain to us your theological approach. And those remonstrants refused to accept the rules that were established by the synod, and as a consequence, were expelled from the synod. So they weren't even able to stay there for the entire argumentation. But the Arminians basically argued this. Number one, they argued that God elects or reproves men on the basis of foreseen faith. So in other words God looks down the long telescope of time and in his all knowingness in his omniscience he knows what every human being is going to do and he knows that some people are going by their own free will to express faith in God and that becomes the cause for why he then chooses them. He elects people based on his foreknowledge of their foreseen faith. Got it? Mm -hmm. Secondly, they argued that Christ died for all men and every man, even though they argued that only believers were ultimately going to be saved. So they said that the sacrifice of Christ was a universal sacrifice. So everybody potentially could be saved. But then only those people who put their faith in Christ were actually saved. But Christ died for everyone universally. Third, they argued that man is so depraved that divine grace is necessary leading to faith. Now last week I remember mentioning to you that the Catholic Church, when they speak of grace, they use the language of grace, but they don't mean the same thing as we mean when we say grace. When we say grace, we are saying that we are wholly incapable, and so any good thing that God does for us, he is doing out of kindness, out of favor from God that we didn't merit, we didn't earn it. In other words, we believe that the goodness of God towards us is utterly and completely gracious. The Catholic Church believes that the grace of God is God infusing you with the ability to be good enough to be accepted by God. That's kind of what they're getting at here. The remonstrance said that man is depraved. It's kind of unavoidable when you look at the Bible that men are sinners And they agreed that divine grace, grace from God, is necessary. You have to have grace from God. But that grace from God then gives you the ability to exercise your faith and put your faith in God. And therefore, God would elect you and you would still be saved based on your free will choice, which God foresaw coming. Number four, individual people can resist that grace of God. So if God is kind to you, if God is good to you, if God gives you the divine grace necessary to come to faith, you can resist it. Little you, you are more powerful than almighty maker of heaven and earth. You have the ability to resist. And then, of course, you'd lose your faith. And then, of course, you'd lose your salvation. And that is the fifth point. The fifth point that they argued was that truly regenerate believers, by regenerate I mean blood-bought, spirit-filled, blood-bought, regenerate believers can lose their faith and therefore can lose their salvation. Those five points are typical Arminianism, which is still being taught in churches all over the land and indeed all over the Western world. Because, again, if you start with the notion of human free will, you have to shoehorn that human free will into your overall theology. And if a man's will is truly free, let me define what I mean by free will, I mean unencumbered by any outside Resource any pressure from anything else. At any given moment, you have the ability to do or not do whatever you want to do or don't want to do, and there's no outside pressure or influence on you to do or not do what you want to do or not do. So every single decision you make all the time is completely free and completely up to you. That's known as libertarian free will. That's also utterly unbiblical but it is the foundation of Arminian doctrine because if you start with free will then you have to protect free will and if you say that people can put their faith in Christ and then be saved and at that point they lose their free will to choose not to have faith anymore well then you're not arguing in favor of free will you're saying your will was free up until the moment you got saved and then once you chose Christ, then you gave up your free will. So the Arminian doctrine is very consistent with itself, but it starts in a bad place. It starts with human free will, which is a completely unbiblical, sub-biblical, dare I say heretical concept. By heretical, I mean not Christian. Instead, what we learn is that your will is remarkably bound. Your will is limited by your capabilities. The example that we gave last week was that we asked Lee to run up to the graveyard and yell at people till they woke up and did jumping jacks. I don't know why I added jumping jacks to the end of it. I just did. And Lee said that he wasn't going to do that. I asked him, why? Why won't they do that? And he said, without missing a beat, because they're dead. That's the way the Bible describes us dead in trespasses and sins. Therefore, if we are dead in trespasses and sins, that's a major incapability. So rather than our will being free, our will is limited by our ability. If I told Leon, do me a favor, jump up and run through that wall, he might give it a good shot, (laughs) but he's not going through that wall. Why? Because his capability is limited. Therefore, no matter how badly he wants to, how badly he wills it, how badly he determines it, he still can't do it because he doesn't have the capability. So when you're thinking theologically, you have to think the same way. Human beings may will to do things that they just cannot do because they don't have the capability because they're dead in trespasses and sins. Got that? In fact, the Bible goes so far as to say, because you're so dead in your trespasses and sins, you don't even want to do the good things. doesn't even cross your mind. So the synod responded to those five points. They studied the theology of the remonstrance. They declared that these five points were, in fact, contrary to Scripture And so what are known as the canons of Dort were created, they were produced in response to the five points I just read. They discussed in detail the five sections and the errors of the remonstrance, and ultimately they rejected all of it, and positive doctrines were affirmed. So what are those positive doctrines? the doctrines in response to the Arminian doctrines are these five. Number one, that predestination is not conditioned on belief. So they actually started at God electing without any merit within the person that nobody could do anything good enough To obligate God. Therefore if anybody was going to be saved. God had to do the choosing. It wasn't humans doing the choosing. The second point they answered. Was that Christ did not die for everybody. So you'll notice that they started at sovereign election. They started at God is sovereign. They wanted that to be the primary right of way point. No God is sovereign in the salvation of human beings. God sovereignly elects. Christ did not Therefore, die for everybody. The third point is that man is, in fact, totally depraved. Mm -hmm. Then, that God's grace is irresistible, meaning that you cannot resist the grace of God. And finally, they talked about the impossibility of falling from grace since the fifth of the Arminian points was that people could, of their own free will, deny their own faith and therefore be lost. The canons of Dort declared that, no, it's impossible for you to fall from God's grace. After all, God is sovereign. Now, that was the original order of those five points. For those of you who are familiar with the acrostic that we commonly use in order to remember the five points of the canons of Dort, you'll notice that the order they put them in would spell altip but then in order to make it more memorable. Really, this this acrostic is just a, a tool to help people remember the five canons of Dort points. And by starting with total depravity, they brought the five points more in league, both with what Calvin wrote in his institutes. He started with the depravity of man. And Calvin, as you may recall from our Roman study, Calvin started with the depravity of man because he was following the order of doctrine that was spelled out in the book of Romans. And the book of Romans starts with the depravity of man. So Calvin started with the depravity of man, and therefore, when the acrostic was formed to help people remember, it started with the depravity of man. So the T stands for total depravity. The U, unconditional election. L, Limited atonement, sometimes called particular atonement. Irresistible grace, that the grace of God cannot be resisted. If God who is almighty decides he's going to save you, you're going to get saved. And finally, perseverance of the saints. Sometimes people will call that preservation of the saints. That the saints who God chose in his sovereignty, those very saints are going to make it all the way to their predetermined, predestined eternity with God. So let's talk just a little bit about the differences then. Because really, every church that calls itself Christian, pretty much across the board, they're all going to agree that human beings are sinners. It's kind of hard to avoid, as you saw, even the Arminian contingent had to agree that men were totally depraved. It's hard to avoid in the Bible. But the debate is about the degree of that depravity. How depraved are people? Are they just kind of okay, kind of neutral, and then they add Jesus to themselves and get better? Or are they actually utterly, completely incapable of doing anything positive toward God? Is their will so bound that the only freedom they have in their thought life, the only willfulness they have, is it just to sin or is it to sin and do some good if they want? Well, of course, the Arminian contingent would say they are depraved, but not so depraved that they can't decide toward God, that they can't have faith if they choose to. Whereas the Synod of Dort said, no, it's actually totally depraved. Now, when you listen to theologians talk about total depravity, oftentimes they will try to define that terminology by saying, now, we're not saying that men are as bad as they could be. We're just saying that they're incapable of doing anything positive toward God. Except as you look at what the Bible says about you, And since the Bible says that you're incapable of doing anything that would result in your eternal salvation, and since it says that your heart is only wickedness all the time, I'm going to go so far as to say the Bible says you are as bad as you could be. I mean, how much worse do you need to be? Just because hanging around with other depraved sinners on this planet, you can compare yourself to other sinners and say, I'm not quite as bad as that sinner. As long as we're here on the planet with the other sinners, we're always going to find somebody that we can compare ourselves to relatively and therefore justify ourselves and say, well, I'm not quite as bad as he is. But you have to remember that the only perspective that counts, the only perspective that matters, is God's perspective. And God, in his complete, righteous, eternal holiness, sees you as constantly nothing but depraved, sinful, evil, wretched, and incapable of doing anything to accomplish your own salvation. So I argue, well, that means you are pretty much as bad as you can be. Just because you might do something relatively good here on the planet, maybe you give some food to somebody, maybe you hold the door open for somebody else, maybe you just do some act of kindness for somebody, you're still in the depraved, utterly incapable state in God's eyes. That is total depravity so then that point are human beings just simply kind of bad they sort of stubbed their toe they sort of stumbled in Adam they didn't really become utterly wretched in Adam is that true or is total depravity true That's what they debated. That's what the argument is about. And the argument continues to this very day because there are people regularly in pulpits telling people that they're not that bad and that they can stir themselves up. Then since the Bible speaks constantly about God electing, about God choosing certain people, he chooses nations, he chooses people for certain tasks, he chooses people for certain destinies, So does he do that choosing on the basis of something within them? Does he either see something in them or he's responding to something in them? Is that the reason that he chose those people? He foresaw that they were going to be slightly better than everybody else or that they were going to choose him. Is that why God chose people or does God pick certain ruined Depraved sinners on the basis of his own private purposes and his own good pleasure with absolutely no human criteria or conditions. That's the debate. Which of those is true? God chooses, but why does God choose? Or does the human do some choosing? That's why I began today by saying it really comes down to a question of who decides. Does God decide? Does the human decide? All Christian churches agree that Jesus hung on the cross even though he was personally innocent. So he died as a substitute for somebody. He was personally innocent. He gave his life. Why would he do that? He must have been doing it for somebody. The question is, who? Who was he giving his life for? The debate is all about who the recipients of the atonement actually are. Did Christ die for each and every person, every individual who ever lived? Or did he pay the ransom very specifically for those elect individuals whom God chose before the foundation of the world, whom God sovereignly gave to his son, and then his son gave his life for those particular people? That's the third point of debate. Who did Christ die for? It's very, very easy to find people on the TV, on the radio, on the internet, and in churches worldwide. Find people who will tell you that Jesus died for everybody because that gives everybody an equal opportunity, an equal chance, and then it's up to you. You just have to choose him. You just have to place your faith in him. You have to make him Lord and Savior. You have to do some activity where you validate him, because after all, he died for you. He died for everyone. It's up to you to decide whether you are going to activate that death on your own behalf. Or did he only die for those people who God positively knew from the very beginning he was actually going to save? Or do you have Jesus dying, pouring out his blood to actively save the very people he knew from the beginning weren't going to be saved. The next point, given the fact that the Bible is replete with references to man's need of the Holy Spirit in order to be saved, the question is, can a man resist that? Or, if God sends his Holy Spirit to you in particular... If he has already written your name down in the Lamb's book of life and he's out to save you, he gave his son for you, his son gave his life for you, once God places his Holy Spirit in you, is that, as Paul calls it, the seal of your redemption? Are you eternally sealed into God and into the finished work of Christ or can you, by your own decision and will making, can you cast that off? Can you say, I don't want to do this, never mind. Well, that's the debate. Any church you have ever walked into that told you you can lose your salvation believes that you can cast off the Holy Spirit if you want to. Which would mean that God would have to be up in heaven erasing your name out of the Lamb's book of life, which you wrote before the foundation of the world. God would have to admit that he was completely wrong in choosing you in the first place. Or that he didn't see it coming that you were going to resist later on and decide not to do this. In other words, the God who doesn't change and who knows everything would have to admit that he didn't know some things. And he would have to change because his original intention was to save you. But then you got yourself unsaved. God would have to admit that he made a mistake. So then the saving work of God is utterly complete because he knows who it is He saved, who it is He sent his son to, who it is he sealed with his holy Spirit? That's the debate. Can you resist or not? Again, who decides? If God decides and He decided for you, you're saved. There's not a lot you can do about that, nor is there a lot you want to do about that. Amen. Yeah But if you decide, well then you can at any point say, Dad. I'm not going to do it. Never mind. I chose not to. And lastly, since it does appear that human beings can be saved at any point in their life, I mean, I have met people who were saved at 11, 12, 13. I have met people who were saved in their 80s. I have met people who are saved at all different ages, but then once they are saved, once they are born again, they have to stay here on this planet among all these other sinners. I think it would be wonderful. It would be great if it was up to me. I would have planned that once God saved somebody, he just took them away. There you go. Straight to heaven. You don't have to deal with all this all down here on the planet anymore because it's tough. We're still down here on the planet dealing with this world, and this world wears us out and beats us to death, and it would be better, you would think, that we would be able to just get out of here. So since we have to live these terrestrial lives after having been saved, is there any possibility that the world is going to beat that faith out of us? Or are we going to persevere in the faith? Well, of course, the Bible says we're going to persevere. And the reason we're going to persevere and not lose our salvation at some point in this terrestrial life is because of the sureness of God's choosing, the completeness of the payment of Christ, the certainty of the call, and the application of the Holy Spirit to us that is all the guarantee that the power of God is going to carry us, carry any saved person, all the way to their predetermined destiny in heaven because it's God's plan. So again, who decides? If God decides, well, if God be for you, who can be against you? So you will endure in this lifetime. In fact, the Bible even speaks of those who appeared to fall away. John says they went out from us because they were never of us. Had they been of us, they'd have remained with us. But they went out to make manifest that they were never of us. The Bible says that those people who God chooses, who God has sacrificed his son for, who God has placed his Holy Spirit in, those people are going to persevere. It's not that it's going to be easy. I wish it was easy. We're going to go through times of difficulty. We're going to go through times of doubt. I cannot tell you the number of people who have reached out to me at different points in their life and said, I don't know if I'm saved. I don't feel saved. I feel so lost. I feel so desperate. I don't, I'm not hanging on to anything right now. And, of course, that's why it's so important to remember it's not up to you. God decides. If it were up to you to decide, and you had that feeling of, well, I don't think I'm saved, well, then you probably wouldn't be. But if it's God's determination that you are indeed saved, then you are saved regardless of what you feel, because the salvation that God accomplishes is not according to your feelings. It's according to his good pleasure, his eternal will, his determination, and his inability to lie. So therefore, you're secure, despite the fact that you're going to struggle in this lifetime. And let's be honest, sometimes Christianity is hard. Sometimes you just have to put your feet down, just plant yourself and just say, here I stand. I can't do anything else. God knows. Sometimes you just got to resort to, it's all up to you, God, but that's actually exactly where you should be. Because it's always been up to him, it always will be up to him, it's not up to you, and this would be a good time to say, "Thank thank God, it's not up to you. Okay, so that's the argument, that's what they debated, that's what they discussed at the Synod of Dort, and then they came away with the five tulip points of grace. And now it's time to delve into the first of them, which is total depravity, because it is my goal this morning to make you feel really good about you. (laughs) But you know what the weird part is? The weird part is blood-bought Christians, really solid biblical Christians, when you say to them, you know you're utterly (laughs) depraved, they'll go, yeah, you know it. Yeah, that's right. That's the truth. Human beings, as long as you're on this planet, as long as you're in this sinful flesh, you're going to continue to struggle with your desire to be righteous and holy and the incapability of your flesh. That struggle is going to go on. But importantly, the doctrine of total depravity says that biblically, all humans and every human is incapable of pleasing God. Therefore, who decides? Since you can't decide, if you are saved, it has to be God that decides. Especially as you get a sense of how genuinely bad God sees you to be. Simply stated, this first doctrine is just, men are sinners. With all the weight that you can manage behind that word sinner. It's not just something that you can take lightly. Sin, the opposite of what God's holiness is. Your rebellion against everything that is right and true. That's how God sees you. The whole person is corrupted. The whole person is separated from every form of godliness because of their sin. All sin is sin against God. Get that right. Even if you sin against another person... God has already spoken to your relationship with other people. Therefore, that sin is ultimately against God. And when you sin against God, you're sinning against the righteous, holy creator of everything. So how bad does that make your sinfulness? I mean, if you can hold on to that reality, it will help encourage you to at least do a bit better. Because you have to recognize that all your rebellions... Are rebellions against God. 1 John 2, chapters 15 and 16 kind of define what sin is for us. It says, Do not love the world nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father but it is from the world this world is passing away and also it's lusts. but the one who does the will of God lives forever sin then is defined as everything that's here in this world and if you love the things of the world you don't love God the love of the Father is not in you the world is full of the lust of your flesh and the lust of your eyes and the pride of life. Now, interestingly, those three exact categories can be found in the initial sin in the Garden of Eden. Early Genesis tells us that when the serpent came and spoke to Eve, she saw that the fruit was good for eating, good for food. Lust of the eyes. Lust of the flesh. She desired it because it was going to make her wise, which is what the serpent said to her. And the serpent said, it's going to make you like God. There it is, pride of life. All three were right there. Even more interestingly, when you look at Jesus and his three temptations in the wilderness, each of the temptations that Satan brought to him fell into one of these three categories. Pride of life. Lust of the eyes, lust of the flesh. Everything in this world is sold to you. All of marketing, all of advertising knows that if they can get to your eyes, and if they can get to your pride in your flesh, and if they can get to your pride of life, they can sell you something. It's the way the prince of the power of the air has designed things. Therefore, once you know that, once you know that everything that's in the world falls into those three categories, and those three categories define the way the world works, you can see why John would say, if you love this world, you don't love the Father. So then, Adam's sin, since we just talked about Adam and Eve in the garden, Adam's sin then is imputed... To all mankind, last week we talked a little bit about Pelagius and the theology of Pelagius. He didn't think that was true. He didn't think that Adam's sin was then imputed to all mankind. He believed that human beings were born essentially neutral and that then via the things that you did in this lifetime, you could either make yourself righteous and holy or you would make yourself a sinner. But the Bible says that Adam's sin is imputed to all mankind. That is what is known as the concept of original sin. Original sin does not mean think up a sin nobody's ever thought of before. Wow, that's original. It means there was an original, an origination of sin on the planet, and that origin of sin is passed on to all humankind. Romans 5, starting to read at verse 12, says... Therefore, just as through one man, sin entered into the world, and death through sin, that's talking about Adam, and his sin, and via his sin, death entered into the world, and so because of that, death was spread to all men, because all then have sinned, for until the law. Sin was in the world, but sin was not imputed when there was no law. Nevertheless, death, which is the result of sin, reigned from Adam to Moses when the law came. Even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of the offense of Adam. Anybody here had access to the tree of life? Anybody here had access to the trees of the garden and the one tree you're not supposed to eat from? None of us have. Therefore, none of us sinned after Adam's sin. None of us committed the same act that Adam did. Nevertheless, we all stand guilty of Adam's sin. So even though we have not sinned in the likeness of the offense of Adam, who is a type of of him who is to come, nevertheless, we're all guilty. You want proof that we're guilty based on what Paul just told us? The proof that we're all guilty is we all die. If you want to prove you're not guilty of Adam's sin, there's a real easy way for you to prove it. Just don't die. If you just stay alive, we will believe, okay, you're not sinful. But Paul argues All mankind dies because all mankind is sinful. Even though we didn't do the same thing Adam did, nevertheless, Adam's sinfulness is imputed to all human beings. After that, then, after the Garden of Eden, comes the flood. This is Genesis 6. Pretty early on, God's view of humanity is in Genesis 6, 5, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Continually. There were no brief periods when some good stuff crept in. That's God's perspective of human beings on the planet. That their wickedness is great on the earth. Every intent because of your thoughts and because of your heart and your emotions, is only evil continually. Now, it doesn't matter if you don't like that, and most of you won't. But the fact is, that's how God sees all mankind. So it's kind of hard to believe that mankind, who is only evil continually, would suddenly go, I need to go choose Jesus. You can't have such a positive thought, you don't have the capability. Because all the intentions of your thoughts, of your heart, are only wickedness continually. Notice then that even the earliest of Adam's descendants, their wickedness was so great. Every thought, every imagination, every desire of their heart is nothing but evil continually. So in Genesis 8.21 we read that the Lord smelled a soothing aroma and the Lord said to himself I will never again after the flood I will never again curse the ground on account of man for the intent of man's heart is evil from his youth okay now we not only know the state of mankind but we also know when they reach that state they're born evil there's no age of uh, accountability human beings are born sinful Isaiah 64 starting at verse 6 declares the extent then of our depravity and like I said earlier sometimes we do some relatively good things we might do something good to another sinner and so we are comparatively good And yet Isaiah 64, 6 says, but we all are an unclean thing and our righteousnesses, that's us in our best state doing good, as good as we get, our righteousnesses are as filthy rags and we do fade as a leaf and our iniquities like the wind have taken us away And there is none that calls upon your name. If there is none that calls upon the name of God, how can it possibly be up to the human sinner to decide? The human sinner cannot decide, considering that it is already declared in God's word that there is none that calls upon your name. There are none that stirred himself up to take hold of thee. None! There's none that ever said, you know, I really ought to make Jesus Lord and Savior. By the way, let me just add for a moment, parenthetically, here, I'll step over here. This is my parenthetical statement. (laughs) You know, I've said for years that I'm amazed at some of the things that preachers say to try to get people to make a decision. And I have said, you know, whatever you're talked into Christianity with, you can also be talked out of Christianity with. If you're convinced of Christianity and you make a decision for Christianity simply because of the well-spokenness and eruditeness of the person doing the speaking so that you become convinced that, yes, this is probably a good idea. This is to my benefit. I really ought to make Jesus Lord and Savior. If you get talked into it that way, somebody else who's equally erudite can talk you out of it. And I was thinking about that very thing the other day. And I realized, if you're the one who talks yourself into it, you're the one that can talk yourself out of it. Who decides? If it's up to you, if it's up to you to make the decision, well, then equally, it's up to you to decide not to do it. It takes the unchanging decision of God on your behalf to guarantee your salvation. All our righteousnesses are like filthy rags. There's no one who ever called upon your name that stirred himself up to take a hold of you, for you have hid your face from us and you have consumed us because of our iniquities. Our sinfulness ultimately makes us prideful, Arrogant, self-sufficient, full of ourselves. You should all have this tattooed to your brain by now. You should know the answer to this question before I ask it. What is the most often cited sin in the Bible? Pride. Pride, Self-sufficiency. Me first. Arrogance. It's all up to me. I'm the one who's going to decide. This last Wednesday night, as we were working our way through the Proverbs, We came across Proverbs 21.4, haughty eyes and a proud heart, and the plowing of the wicked is sin. We talked about it fairly extensively, and I said, look, even just plowing, just making sure you've got some food, just being diligent, just doing your work is sin because it's being done by a sinful person, and God sees everything that the sinner does as sin. Even the innocuous things, like plowing. But look where it starts. Haughty eyes and a proud heart. Me, lifting up your eyes instead of lowering your eyes in humility. Looking down your nose at people. And lifted up in your heart so full of your own self-arrogance, Well, then, yes, everything you do in that condition, even if it's seemingly innocuous to everybody else from God's perspective, that's also sin. That's how depraved sinners we are. Psalm 101, verse 5, whoever secretly slanders his neighbor, him I will destroy. No one who has a haughty look and an arrogant heart. Will I endure getting some sense of how God views our sinful arrogance and yet our sinful arrogance is inherent in us. It's part of what sin is. It's part of us trying to decide for ourselves. I go back to my original question who decides God decides for you every decision you make hurts you every decision you make is full of yourself and full of arrogance and full of pride instead of depending on God, instead of recognizing your utter and complete dependence on him. But just walking through this life feeling self-sufficient is enough for God to look at your haughty looks and your arrogant heart and say, if you remain in that condition, I'm not going to endure you. The most gracious thing God can do for you is break you. The kindest thing God can do for you is help you get over yourself and recognize your dependence on him. Ecclesiastes 9.3, still talking about our pride and our arrogance. It says, this is an evil in all that is done under the sun, for there is one fate for all men. Furthermore, the hearts of the sons of men are full of evil and insanity. The King James says, and madness. That's what your heart's full of. Your heart is just full of wickedness, evil, and insanity. Here, let's see if I can make this more uh, applicable to every one of you at the moment. Have you ever been laying in bed at the end of the day or when you're awake in the morning and some horrible, foolish, violent thing runs through your head, wakes you up and makes you go, what is that? Why am I thinking that? Have you ever laid in bed thinking about vengeance on your enemies? Oh, yeah. Oh, that got everybody very silent. Yeah, have you ever had thoughts, depraved thoughts, evil thoughts that run through your head that you think, how can that be me? How can I be thinking like that? You're not just nodding. You're smiling. You rethought the thought, didn't you? Yes, it's... We're just full of evil and insanity. We're not sane. We don't know what's good for us. We don't know what's right for us. If we understood our own depravity and God's own holiness, we'd never get off our faces. Mm. We'd be on our knees continually, but we're not because, well, we got things to do. And we're busy being self-sufficient. And we have no idea how insane we are. We're so insane, we don't know we're insane. We're so depraved, we don't know we're depraved. We're so sinful, we justify our sinfulness. That's how insane we are. You would think we'd be going to God on a constant basis saying, forgive me, I'm a sinner. I recognize my own depravity. But our pride, our arrogance, our self-sufficiency holds us back from doing that. That is insanity. That insanity is in our hearts throughout our lives, and afterwards, we go to the dead. So you're insane your whole life if God doesn't interrupt your life, if God is not gracious to you, if God does not break you, if God doesn't do all the positive things for you that you need so desperately, if he leaves you in your insanity, then you're crazy your whole life, then you die, then you're judged. That's the way life works. And even if you don't like it, that's what it is. So then in the New Testament, 1 Peter 5, 5 says, You younger men, likewise, be subject to your elders, and all of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another, for God is opposed to the proud. But he gives grace to the humble. The Bible keeps saying, recognize your own pride and suppress that in you. Be good to one another. One of the best ways to suppress your own arrogance is to be good to someone else. Pray for someone else. Give to someone else. Don't reckon the things you have as yours. Recognize that God gave you those things and then be generous with them. That takes self-sacrifice. And that self-sacrificial work is part of genuine humility. James four six says the same thing, but he gives a greater grace. Therefore, it says, God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. So, evidence of the depth of our depravity is in our sinfulness that keeps us from recognizing how genuinely sinful we are. Jeremiah 17.9 says the same thing. It says, the heart is more deceitful than everything else, and it's desperately sick, and who can understand it? Okay, the thoughts and intentions, your brain, your imagination, your heart, so far it's all described as desperately wicked, and who can know it? So then does that begin from the very beginning of your life? Or is that something you learn? Is that something that society imposes on you? Is that something that you understand as you grow older? Is uh, Pelagius right? Are you born neutral and then you become a sinner based on the sins that you choose to do? Can you remain in an innocent state by just deciding not to? Well, no, because the Bible says this. The wicked are estranged from the womb, They go astray as soon as they are born, speaking lies. Anybody who's ever had a child knows that's true. Everybody knows that babies lie. My daughter used to lie to me all the time as an infant. The example that I used to give was, she had a cry that she could do, which was the, I'm starving to death, cry. If you don't come now, I'm going to die. She had that cry in her, and she would do that cry, and Dad would come running. She wouldn't do the, you know, I just want to get out of my crib cry, because she knew if she did that cry, I'm not coming. I'm just going to leave her there and say, okay, cry it out. But no, if she does the I'm desperate cry, I think something's horribly wrong. She's hurt herself. I come running. I get there. She just wants to play. She's fine. She was doing that at two months. Why? Because she came out of the womb speaking lies. Happens right away. Human beings are depraved from the very beginning. Psalm 14, the first three verses says, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God but they are corrupt. They have committed abominable deeds. There is no one who does good. The Lord has looked down from heaven upon the sons of men to see if there were any who understand, any who seek after God, but they have all turned aside and together they have become corrupt. There is no one who does good. No, not even one. Okay, so then that passage from Isaiah and the passage I just read from David's writing is then imported into the New Testament in the book of Romans. Paul picks all that up and says, this is still true. This is still the accurate description of human beings. Romans 1 Starting at verse 18, and I'm going to read all the way to verse 32. And just let these words wash over you for a moment and understand that Paul is speaking right from the scripture. He's bringing it forward into his letter to the Roman church. Now it's become part of our scripture. This is God telling you how God sees human beings by nature. Yes. This is what he said. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and the unrighteousness of men who suppress or hold down the truth in their unrighteousness. Because that which is known about God is evident within them for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and his divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made so that they, the men, are without excuse. For even though they, the men, knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations and their foolish heart. Was darkened, and professing to be wise, they became fools. And they exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man, and of birds, and of four footed animals and crawling creatures. And therefore God gave them over in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, that their bodies might be dishonored among them. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie. And they worshiped and they served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Amen. For this reason, God gave them over to degrading passions. For their women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural, and in the same way also the men abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned in their desire toward one another, men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty for their error. And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper, being filled with all unrighteousness and wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. And although they know the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but they give hearty approval to those who practice them. Then Romans 3, starting at verse 10, picks it up. As it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. All have turned aside. Together, They have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. Their throat is an open grave. With their tongues they keep deceiving. And the poison of asps is under their lips. Whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths. And the path of peace they have not known. And there is no fear of God before their eyes. That's how God sees you. Doesn't matter what you think. Doesn't matter if you don't like it. That's how God sees all mankind, therefore that is the state of all mankind. And yet, despite the fact that that is the state of all mankind, some people were promised in the Bible, some people get saved. Who decides? It can't be man. Man can't do it. He can't stir himself up. He can't choose God. He never decided to go to God. He's nothing but wickedness and evil continually. He can't decide. So if anybody gets saved, it has to be God who does the deciding. Ephesians 2, the first three verses, Paul is speaking to saved people. And he says, and you were dead in your trespasses. You're not going to hear better news this morning than that fact. That Paul writing to saved sinners could speak in the past tense and say you were dead in your trespasses and sins. What does that mean? It means you're not anymore. It means you've been quickened. It means you've been made alive. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked. According to the course of this world, remember what we've already read. If you love this world, the love of the Father is not in you. You used to walk after this world. And you used to walk according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. And among them, we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of our flesh and of our mind. And we were by nature the children of wrath, even as the rest were. Look at all mankind. All mankind is indulging in the desires of their flesh and of their mind. By nature, they are children of wrath. That's why the Bible says that God plucked some brands out of the fire. Some people who deserve judgment aren't going to get judgment. And you are no different than the whole rest of the world. You're just as depraved as the whole rest of the world. That's what Paul said. You used to walk after the course of this world, after the prince of the power of the air, and you were children of wrath, just like the others. But God decided. And that's really, really good news. That's why these are called doctrines of grace. Because he couldn't have seen anything good in you, given your state if he looked down the long telescope of time to find somebody good, there's nobody good. There's nobody who stirred himself up so God's clearly not reacting to people. Instead, God chose and he did it graciously. And next week, we'll get into that. That God, by his unmerited favor, decided to elect some people out of the mass of completely destroyed and ruined sinners. And he did that choosing by grace, 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 grace. And that's why we're going to sing 236, which is amazing grace. (laughs) And I hope that when you sing that this morning, you actually understand that it was grace. I should have asked if there were any questions, but... I'm not better.